Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kishanu v'mitzvotah v'tzivanu la'asok v'divrei Torah. V'harevna Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torateka v'finu ufi amka v'etz Yisrael, v'niye anaknu v'etzaetzainu v'etzaetzai amka v'etz Yisrael, kulanu yodea shemeka v'lomde Torateka lishma. Baruch atah Adonai hamlamed Torah le'amo Yisrael. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Welcome to Mashiach Mondays for Parasha Tazria and Parasha Medzora. This is a double Parasha this week and a Chodesh Tov for the month of ER to everyone. I pray that whatever healing that you need in your life, that Hashem would grant you a bracha, that you will find that healing, fullness of health and restoration. And I want to dedicate this podcast as well to the mighty Haver, Manasha Ben Abraham. Shlita, Hakadosh Baruchu, may you do an amazing, miraculous, beautiful healing in the life of my fellow Avenger, my fellow brother, and fellow just studier of Torah. Can you hear our tone? So, want to open up with Lakute Torah on Parsha Tazria. Here's what it says. The blessing traditionally recited at a wedding. The barren woman will greatly rejoice and be glad when her sons gather in to her with joy. So first of all, I just want to just say, just as input here, it's interesting. Bezrat Hashem, if every woman who enters underneath the hoopah for the first time Bezrat Hashem, they're, they're a, a, a batula or an alma, a virgin, or a young maiden, shall we say, parthenos, um, that they do not have children. And that it's one of those things you wonder, even though everything may check out and be cool and everything, you know, it's like, could they have children, you know? Um, in other words, they enter into the hoopah childless. Maybe they can, or maybe they can't. It's all in potential. And, you know, chasve shalom that we have barren women in, in Israel, you know, cause one of the blessings of us being in covenant with Hashem and being obedient to his voice is that the plagues of Mitzrayim are not brought upon us and, also that none of our women miscarry and obviously we live in a broken world so those things unfortunately don't always work out but when we have the temple and when the geula happens then yes it will those things will be in full effect so there will be no more miscarriages and the plagues of misrain will no longer plague us we will no longer be in exile and the whole entire world will know hashem there won't be any concealment. This is what we say in the Elenu. Every knee will bend and every tongue will confess. <clears throat> so just the thing that I wanted to bring out, it's just interesting that when you first enter into Kiddushin, because that's what marriage is called in Judaism, holiness, covenant, and the woman 
has a bracha spoken over her, and one of them is the barren woman will greatly rejoice. And it's like, but should she be a person who has complications in getting pregnant? And it's like, regardless, here's the blessing. So I just think it's amazing that all women can be on the same status and the same platform and receive a bracha. So may it be that if you're a woman and you're listening and you're headed towards being married and and things like that, I pray that you're not barren. I pray that you are filled with life and that as you enter underneath the hoopah and enter into Kiddushin, that it is a beautiful time that you will have many children who are like wild olive shoots around the Shabbat table and that you will have children who are Torah scholars who love and fear Hashem who bring light and gula into the world. B'Shem Yeshua. So going on, it says, this raises an obvious question. If the woman is barren, how does she come to have sons? Because this bracha specifically is saying, the woman will greatly rejoice and be glad when her sons gather into her with joy. It's like, well, what about the daughters? Well, one of the the definitions of child is yelled be'ivrit yod lamet dalet and the ben is first and foremost of the yelled so in other words the ben is son so when you have a ben that is considered to be like a great blessing and it's preferable that um, you have a son among many of your children. So, you know, son and daughter would complete the mitzvah of being fruitful and multiplying. And again, I brought this up in previous podcasts, but just to reiterate, the Yod and Hay and Vav and Hay is the family unit. The Yod is the dad. The first Hay is the Ima, the mom. The Vav is the son and the Hay is the daughter. So you have the upper hay and the lower hay. Those are the two hays of the divine name. And then you have the yod and then the extended yod. According to Kabbalah tunes, yes, they have a cartoon of the Hebrew letters and it brings down beautiful Kabbalah in there. And I found this on Chabad about six years ago. So I don't know if it's still available, but Bezrat Hashem it is. The teaching of the letter Vav is that it's a yod pulled down from the high to the low. So in other words, you have this picture of the yod and hay, the mom and dad, extending down into the Vav and hay, which is the son and the daughter. And again, if you think about what the son and the daughter actually do, they're the next link in the chain of generations, Bezrat Hashem, to future descendants and offspring. So that the mother and the father are perpetuated through their children. Master plan actually speaks a lot about having children and family and things like that. So Bezrat Hashem and the master plan series, we'll get into that. But for now, just going to stick with this and Lakute Torah. Says the answer may be found in the rules of Hebrew grammar in which second person masculine takes the same form as third person feminine so second person masculine is the same as third person feminine 
and the future tense. Thus, the word for will rejoice is tasis, which is like sos, sos, sasis, padonai, tagel, nafshi, belochai, ki hubishani, bikteyesha, you know, greatly rejoicing in the garments of salvation Hashem places upon us, the passage from Yeshiyahu, Isaiah. Beautiful song by Makedim, by the way. So, Tasis is the word will rejoice, and it is in the future tense. And it says, this is susceptible to two meanings. It can be understood consistent with the plain meaning of the verse as an intransitive verb, the subject of which is the barren woman. So, in other words, Tasis could be used in feminine because it's in the future tense. And it could apply to a woman. But here it goes. It says, or as a transitive verb whose subject is God, in which case the verse would read, you, God, will make her rejoice. So Tassis could be the woman rejoicing or Tassis could be Hashem causing the woman to rejoice. So what's that all about? The significance of all this will be understood after a discussion of Talmudic teaching in Brachot 60a and Nida 31a concerning the respective contributions during marital relations of the seed of the husband and wife. Of or on the verse in this week's Torah portion, Vayichra 12.2 when a woman conceives and bears, see, ki tazria, when a woman conceives and bears a male. So remember, ta, like shall, seed from the word zera. So ta, tav, zera, so tazria is how you would say um, the woman shall conceive. But remember what we just said, this could also apply to Hashem. So Hashem will cause the woman to conceive. Ah, where have we seen this before? You probably already have guessed where we're going with this week's parasha, at least for Tazria. Bezrat Hashem, we get to Medora. Well, we know that Sarah was not able to have children. And then Hashem caused her to be able to have children. And the Midrash Rabbah actually brought it down that Hashem oversaw Sarah's conception to have Isaac. So yes, Hashem himself said, you know what? I'll take it from here. I'll make sure that Sarah has a son who will be Isaac. The significant part about that is when Isaac was born, Everyone was like, there's no way Abraham and Sarah could do this. So Hashem changed Yitzhak's features and his face looked like Abraham. So Hashem caused the son to be born to Sarah and caused him to look like Abraham. Remember through all of the different studies that we've done over the past years, Abraham looks like Adam. Sarah looks like Hava. So Adam and Eve 
basically, again, have a child who looks like the image of the father. And that child is born by the direct hand of Hashem. Now let's stair-step this. When the first Adam was brought forth from the earth, Hashem went into the earth and fashioned and mold, molded Adam. Human beings are made out of earth. So when Hashem went to the woman and caused her to conceive and bring forth a child, it's no different than Hashem bringing Adam directly from the earth. Because again, human beings are made out of earth. So obviously this gets very uncomfortable because this sounds like some Greek mythology. This sounds like lots of different uh, narratives that have happened in folklore where this woman just all of a sudden has a child. And then you have the mystery that surrounds Yeshua HaMashiach's mother, Miriam, by the way, who there are a lot of when you check the first century. One of them was a hairdresser near the city of Bethlehem, Bethlehem, and she had relations with a Roman centurion whose name was Pantera. Guess what they named the child? Yeshua. So, let's go ahead and up the ante here. We know that Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, was married to Yosef. Well, one of the names of this Pantera guy is also Yosef. So you have a Miriam and a Yosef who have a Yeshua near Bethlehem because it's a woman who works at a brothel as a hairdresser. And there you go. So he's supposed to be the son of a harlot. That is significant because that is Lashon Hara. And that is part of Parsha Metzora. And when you put Tazria Metzora together, it literally means to give birth to a leper. So, Ki Tazria Metzora, the woman shall give birth to a leper. So, now the Mashiach is called a leper. Now, remember, a leper is really not leprosy like we think of today. It's actually Za'arat. And a person who has Za'arat is called a Metzora. So, now the woman will give birth to a son who has Za'arat, who is considered to be a Metzora. The word Hevra or Hevra is uh, from the Hebrew word for white, which is the spots, the spottiness, or the all-white covering that a person with Za'arat could have, depending on what the Kohen Gadol rules for them. This is significant because when you speak Lashon Hara, back in temple times and when we had the Mishkan, when we're out in the wilderness, you would break out in Za'arat. See Miriam, when she spoke against Moshe. See Moshe when he spoke against Israel at the burning bush. He stuck his hand in his garment, pulled it out. It was leprous, put it back in. It was all cleared up. Now, where are we going with this? So speaking ill of Yeshua Mashiach and saying he's born of a harlot and all the mystery that surrounds him being called Yeshu, which is a very, very derogatory term. Then you have the fact of people calling him 
Jesus, which is, again, another derogatory term, but it's one of the 70 languages because in Greek, the only way to say Yeshua is to say Yeshu, which is sounds like Yeshu and ultimately became Jesus through translating and translating and translating from Greek to Latin to Spanish to English and then the Reformation in English because it was more of Jeshu when it came out or Yeshu when it came out and then it went to Jeshu when they introduced the letter J back in the 1600s. But we digress, don't we? So all of that being said, to call him something other than what his name actually is, there's a lot of room for yes and a lot of room for no on that because, again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on Mashiach Mondays, Mashiach's question to us is always, who do you say I am? If you want me to be Jesus, I will be that to you. And that will create what we've seen for century and century and century of crusades and inquisitions and conversos and um, holocausts, you know, just little things like that. By the way, we did have Holocaust Remembrance Day last week. So Baruch Diana met to all those souls that were departed. Um, yep, just a moment of silence for them. And it's crazy because there's this idea that is being portrayed in media or educational uh I don't know, educational entities who want to try to cover up the Holocaust and say it never happened. Uh, the, the crazy thing about history is if you don't study it and if you don't look into it and research it for yourself, you would think it doesn't happen because we don't even remember what happened to us last week. You know, so there's all that to really take into consideration. But all that being said, when we have Lashon Hara, it causes Za'arat, which brings about the aspect of the Metzora, which is why the Mashiach is also known as the Leprous Mashiach or the Leper Messiah. And again, Bezrat Shem will get into that. That's actually in the Messiah text in case I don't get to it. So back to this. So we have the fact here of the woman conceiving and lost my place, but we found it, Baruch Hashem. So then it says, our sages teach that if a woman contributes seed first, she gives birth to a male. If the man contributes seed first, she gives birth to a female. Now, to stay completely anatomically correct in biology and all that, basically when there is the fluid exchange during marital relations, if the woman's fluid goes first, then there is a son born. Then if the man emits his seed first before the woman does anything, then it would be a girl according to our sages. Now, obviously, there could be a lot of different things that you can come up with, scientific thoughts and things like that, but that is not what we're here to get into. We're just wanting to bring down the source, 
that if the woman emits seed first, if she, you know, does her thing first, there's a son to be born. It's interesting to think about this when we talk about the idea of the young maiden, the Alma, the Batula being caused to conceive from Hashem without any male input. Because again, Barakot 68 and Nida 31a talk about the fact that there is seed that goes from the woman. And if that happens, there's your son. It doesn't say anything about, well, if the man goes after the woman and then, you know, da, 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 da. But we do know there are three partners in the conception of a human being. There is the mom, the dad, and Hashem. So when it comes to understanding that, how could we have the father missing from the picture and just Hashem and the mom? Well, again, go back to Bereshit 1, or uh, Slika, Bereshit, yeah, Bereshit 1 and Bereshit 2, where Hashem caused a man to be born from the earth, which, by the way, the earth in Jewish thought is a woman. It has feminine qualities, and the rains that come down into the earth actually are likened to the male aspect entering into the female to bring forth produce, which is the plants and vegetation, all those things. Very, very uh, Hasidic and Kabbalistic in thought because that's in um, at least Shavile Pincus Shlita brought this down a couple of years ago uh, in one of the Parshot commentaries where he was talking about the earth and how it produces and things like that so i want to go ahead and jump over to what the rabbis know about the messiah on page 51 because hashem totally has these opportunities that we've seen where the woman is going to give birth even if there's not a father in the picture and again our precedent is when hashem fashioned and formed Adam from the earth without there being by the way uh, a mother or father in the picture it was just Hashem himself because who has the keys to childbirth Hashem key to childbirth key to nature key to um, death resurrection basically Hashem has those keys and he doesn't give them to anybody so that begs the question what about when Eliyahu and Elishua, which is Elisha, Elisha, and Yeshua were resurrecting people? Now, obviously, those people have died and are yet to be resurrected again. But a couple of weeks ago, we talked about some who did resurrect with Yeshua and they walked around the city and then made the ascent with Yeshua. So, or actually, we don't know if they made the ascent with Yeshua. We don't hear about that part. We just hear about that they were raised with him and walking around the city. And that's only in the Matthew account. But anyway, on page 51 over here, if you drop down to the paragraph that starts with God rejected Ahaz because he was unworthy of God's miracles. 
But God nevertheless gave a miraculous sign to the whole house of David. So in other words, when Hashem causes the woman to conceive without a father being in the picture, it's a miraculous sign. How many of us know Hashem doesn't want us fixated and focused on everything being like super miraculous, breaking the rules and bonds of nature? As I recall, there were towns that wanted Yeshua to do miracle after miracle and be like, we won't believe in you unless you do miracles. And what did he do? What was his response? He left. (laughs) The glory of Hashem departed from those places. So in other words, what are we trying to say? Because on the other hand, Judaism teaches we should see everything that happens to us day to day, moment by moment as a miracle, right? We say this in the Thanksgiving prayer. Uh, and the uh, the Moedim prayer of the Shemani Esrei, evening, morning, and afternoon, all of the things that Hashem does for us, our hope is always in Him, right? But this right here, with the child being born of a Betula Alma Parthenos young maiden virgin, just again throwing all those words out of there, so. We know all these words are synonymous. You can do a whole study on them. But it goes on to say, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Okay, so the Lord is going to do this. Footnote 19 corresponds to the word here in Hebrew is ot, which is more of a wonderful sign or miracle, which, yes, ot. Signs and wonders. This is part of what Hashem did for us to bring us out of Mitzrayim, by the way. It says a wonderful sign or miracle, as for example, the Exodus plagues and the Noahic rainbow. Those are called Oat. Then it goes on to say, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land that you abhor shall be forsaken by both her kings. Okay, so that is from. Isaiah seven fourteen through 16. It says here, God promises a sign of a supernatural child born of a virgin. Parentheses, Alma, which comes from the word Olam, which is the word for hidden, concealed. Also the word for eternity. This is why the Olam Haba is actually, it exists now, but it's concealed. We don't see it yet. And then this is another reason why, just another side note real quick. This is another reason why we ask Hashem to reveal the final Geula, reveal Mashiach ben David, reveal the building of the Beit HaMikdash. Higale na, like as we say in Yadid Nefesh, please be revealed, spread out upon your beloved. Higale na, 
Ufros chavivialai Esuka shalomeka Tairet Yeah, you know, little Moshav action. Shouts out to Moshav. I probably messed up that last line, so slicha. <laughs> but anyway, it says, Who would carry the symbolic name Emmanuel, which is God with us? He would be the promised king who would not make alliances with Assyria. The mighty Assyrians would not prevail because Emmanuel and not Ahaz would rule Israel. Footnote 22. What does it say? Isaiah 8, 7 through 10. And we have another footnote for Sanhedrin. What are they talking about? Just because I'm curious. Rabbi Hillel maintained Yisrael cannot expect Mashiach any longer for they already enjoyed him in the time of Hiskiyahu, Hezekiah. And that is Sanhedrin 99a. So last week I talked about this among many things in the Mashiach Mondays that uh, ultimately was understood Hezekiah was not the Mashiach. But current events, apparently there is a lot of fake news again, hype and all that kind of stuff about a certain individual who is proclaimed as Mashiach Ben David and it's all in Spanish. And if you really look at the way it's spelled, it's actually considered to be Hezekiah. It's like a J Z I something K like it's a weird like just Kia, you know, you're like, what is that? You know, and it's like, here's the Mashiach. He's here. Will he build a temple? And nothing of it is in English. Nothing of it is in Hebrew. At least I haven't found anything. And it's like it's all in Spanish. It's like Spanish news going crazy. I'm a huge fan of the Spanish language. Just throwing it out there, but uh, hello, can we have more coverage and more languages? Pretty sure when the Mashiach comes, it's not going to be just like, here, here's this, and no one can understand it, and the name looks weird. <laughs> so I don't know. Anyway, that's just too much conjecture. So back to Lakute Sikot. Back to you, Bob. No, Lakute Torah, not Sikot. What is going on? talking about fake Mashiachs and then this happens let's get back on track so we know that we can have a supernatural child born of a woman and the last time this happened everybody was like oh yeah that's the Mashiach that's Hezekiah he was born of a virgin he's Emmanuel boom and it's like okay so Hashem couldn't do that again just that's a one-shot deal you know it's just like well if he did it with sarah again he did it with adam you know it was just like what else so anyway goes on to say this may be taken as an allegory relevant to our relationship with God. So the first pasuk of Parashat Tazria is allegorical. 
obviously Peshat, but it's also going to be taken as allegory. That says this is our relationship with Hashem. It is a recurring theme in Torah literature that the Jewish people is compared to a woman and God to our husband. You know, um, I have this song that I was writing a few lyrics for, and I just want to share them because this would be a perfect context because it talks about being a bride. Uh, I was going to call it Eshet Lapidot, but it's up for debate if I'll even get to do this song and if I will still call it this name. Okay, so we're going to play like that, huh? Wow. I've done something with the lyrics. I cannot find them. Yep, so I'm going to have to just recite this off the top of my head. I am a he, bae, reet, that's a she, because I'm Kiddushin to the king of kings. Vision high and lofty, living for the price of which he bought me. Consider what it cost me. I don't need change, but it's exchange. Bring change, free from the stains. That's the snakes and the scorpions. Do when the do up with the ruwap. <laughs> this fire keeps burning and it won't stop. So we gon' let 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 it burn. With his word in my heart, let let it turn. Okay, anyway. Uh straight unleashing to Shuva. Not a living life, super duper. Hanging with the king, no Koopa. Hashtag gotta get that true, bruh. <laughs> okay. Anyway, that's yeah. So we, even as men, we're considered a bride. We're considered a woman, you know. And it's just like this beautiful thing, because now that gives a whole new meaning to the passage. And I believe it's Ephesians where it was talking about husbands love your wives like Mashiach loves the congregation, you know, because. The Kehila, the Kahal, the Kalal Yisrael, if you will, is the woman and Hashem is the man. So if Mashiach is the husband of Yisrael, then, but I thought Hashem was the husband of Israel. See, this is where it gets all crazy, where it's like, is it Hashem or is it Mashiach, you know, kind of thing. Anyway, just say la. But, um, we have the passage in Corinthians that says the covering of the man is Hashem. The covering of the woman is the man, you know, and, and all those the different stair step process. So there's just this beautiful understanding of how even as men, we are to understand the aspect of being the Kala, you know, the bride. And um, just so we know the the word for wedding uh sometimes in hebrew is called chasuna chasuna which actually takes chatan and kala and merges those words together katan being the bridegroom and kala being the bride put those together you get chasuna so if you see that word it looks like chasuna or chasana you know 
if you see that word, that's what that is. That's wedding. And the Stremel is the big, big, um, gorgeous hat. I think it's the furry one that um, Jewish men wear. So, just so we know on that one. All right. Back to Lukute. Torah. <laughs> Parsha Tazriel. So, Jewish people are the woman. God is the husband. It says, as for example, in the verse Hosea, Hosea chapter 2, verse 18. On that day, you, the Jewish people, will call me Hashem, my husband. So, we will call Hashem my husband. There are basically two approaches to our relationship with God. The preferred approach is for us Jews to take the initiative and try to develop a feeling within ourselves of love and respect or fear for God. When we do this, God reciprocates and bestows upon us the ability to surpass our limited moral or mortal capacity for love and fear of the divine. Here's where... I can't believe you're in bondage to the law and you do that Torah stuff comes into play because outside looking in without taking any initiative, there is a threshold. There is a limit to how much you can really engage in this. But if you're willing to step out of the boat, yes, I'm talking like Kepha walking to Yeshua, step out of the boat and say, Hashem, I want to love you, which means I'm going to do your commandments because if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, that kind of thing. Side note, love of God is equated with the mitzvot. So your love is based off of your mitzvot. So they they go hand in hand. So the more you love Hashem, the more into the mitzvot you are. Not quantity per se, but quality because it's all about deepening your relationship, your connection, your improving and your bettering of yourself. Like as we're counting the Omer, this week is Teferit week, you know, so we're bringing in the fear and the love of Hashem, the two columns, bringing it to the center, the, the fear and the love. And we're unifying that. And that's in Teferit. And that will also be in, uh, Yesod as well. And Malkut. Those are all central column uh, Sefi wrote. So this is one of the weeks where we get to unify things and continue to uh, rectify all of our emotional attributes and prepare ourselves as beautiful vessels for the light of the Torah to shine through. One of the things, just a heads up on that, this is the importance of doing Sefirata Omer every single year is because the Torah is light. And we know that before creation, there was the light of Hashem that Slikot went out into all these vessels, these primordial vessels, Sefi wrote, if you will, and this light filled those vessels, like unfiltered, unlimited, just amazing, directly from Hashem, and the vessels could not contain this light, so they shattered, they broke. This can happen to us as well. The Torah in our life, the more we allow it to permeate us and the more it comes into us, if we are not rectifying our attributes, our midot, our character, if we're not improving our understanding, our knowledge and our awareness of Hashem and how we interact and engage with the world. If we're not doing those things and getting better in that, 
every day, every week, every month. You know, this is why we go from Shabbat to Shabbat, from Rosh Hodesh to Rosh Hodesh, from Yom Tov to Yom Tov, to Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah, to Shemitah to Shemitah, to Yovel to Yovel, to so on and so forth. Just like big, big spiral, Fibonacci spiral, like I talked about in Parsha Shmini last week when we did the time warp. Previous episode of the podcast, by the way. That was a fun one. But ain't nobody got time for that. I'm just kidding. Just had to do a little time pun. Time's up. Okay. So, you know, we do all these things because we need to make sure that our vessels don't explode and shatter. And these are the tragedies of people who walk away from observance, people who burn out, people who uh, just, and when they burn out, they don't ever recover kind of thing. They're just, I'm done with that. I don't care about tour anymore. Like the fire goes out, the the apathy sets in, the um, the criticism sets in. Where you know, as the Jewish handbook handbook of Jewish thought teaches, when a person um, gets away from Torah, they actually cause others to be pulled away from Torah. And it's just like this horrible downward spiral. It's like it's one thing for you to pull yourself away, but because you're pulling yourself away, you start pulling other people away. You know, and it starts with the little jabs of the comments, and then it goes from the comments to the actions, and then it really goes into strategies and plans for let me ambush this person. You know, and so this is why, again, Handbook of Jewish Thought, this is volume two, teaches that you don't engage in conversation with these people especially when it comes to Torah matters and we know because how much we're human beings conversations flip within half a second you're just like we were talking about one thing and now we're way over here talking about this and this is the danger of interacting with people who are who whose vessels have just shattered and busted you know like trying to say anything or be anything to these people you know you represent the Torah that they once embodied and now just boom but the beautiful thing about it and this is the the awesome thing about Hashem is that if you've ever touched Torah and had it in your life it remains with you for eternity and the term, I don't know if this is the correct term to use for this, so I don't want to be quoted on it, but I just want to bring it up as a concept to bridge to the main point. There's a word called Rishimut, and it's basically like the afterglow or the after effects of the light of Torah permeating an object. So when Torah hits you, hits your, sh- your soul, your neshama, you know, it's like, boom, it's there. And if you ever depart from it, then there's still that that uh, afterglow, that after effect of you were, you've done Shabbats, you've ate kosher, you have kept the Yom Tov, you've once had matzah in your life, you've once wrapped tefillin, you've once made challah, you know, there that remains with you forever. Because that's the power of the light of Torah. It's so ridiculous that even if you did one mitzvah 
that's huge merit. Now, depending on your your uh, demeanor, your deeds, and things like that, you can lose and gain mitzvot, which Bezar Hashem will talk about. But it's all to say we need to make sure we're continuously making our vessels fit for the light that we're receiving. This is why the verse exists. Work and study to show yourself approved. What verse is that? Let's go to it. Stand by. This is from Second Timothy two fifteen. Let's read in context. Remind the believers that word believers again. If you understand what the word believer is, it's amin or ma amin, literally from faith, ma or me from. Amin, which is Amen, Amuna, the root of Emet. So the people who are the affirmers of the truth, the people who are the followers of truth, followers of the way. Yes, you got it. Those are called believers. The only group of people that are identified as believers, according to Torah, are Jews. Yep. People who are Covenant people with Hashem. The Nase Venishma people. Those are believers. Because Jews are called believers and children of believers. And who are those believers? That's Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So if you want to consider yourself to be a believer, you need to ask yourself, when will my deeds reach the level of the patriarchs? Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are your father, if you consider yourself to be a believer. And as a child, you emulate the ways of your father. This is why we're called children of God, which are, which is why we are imitators of God. Okay. So that's the first part of the verse. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2. I, I read verse 14 or at least the first word. So let's go back over it. Remind the believers of these things, charging them before God to avoid quarreling over words, which succeeds only in leading the listeners to ruin. One prime example of this is the word virgin and young maiden. That's why I kept emphasizing and reiterating all the different ways to talk about it. There are literally people, probably even if they hear this podcast, will debate it. Brukashim. Parthenos, Batula, Almond, Alma, not Almond, but Alma, you know, those words. Like people argue over that. It's like, no, it doesn't mean that. Can't mean that. It's like, okay. Just uh second Timothy Chapter 2, verse 14. Moving on to our primary verse, it says, Make every effort to present yourself approved to God, an unashamed workman who accurately handles the word of God. 
but avoid irreverent, empty chatter, which will only lead to more ungodliness. What did we just say about the the Metzora? The the horrible speech that this person would have, and it causes zarat. Okay, zarat, pain, affliction, just um, hot word about to be mentioned. Quarantined. It causes quarantine. Yep. Quarantine is one of the effects of horrible speech and horrible character. Lashon Hara goes beyond just what you speak. It's actually who you are and what you do. It literally is like what is flowing from the wellspring of your being. Because in order for you to speak Lashon Hara, there has to be something going on deep down inside of you that says, it's okay to say this. It's okay to do this. It's okay to be like this to that person. It's okay to degrade the image of Hashem. Because guess what? Every person you meet, every human being, is the image of Hashem. We were made in his image, literally. Obviously, that image is fallen, which is a problem, and that's getting rectified as we speak. The culmination of it is the return of the Mashiach. Bo Mashiach. Kilishuateka kiviti Adonai. Mashiach now. But... You cannot just go around uh, degrading people with words or with your actions and things like that. You have to see every person as a glimmer of the light of the one who is the light. That probably will cause some second guessing, you know, when we try to think about people like they're like, oh, Hashem, this is supposed to be your image. What is this? You know? So, yeah, bet we're going to be challenged on that one. Baruch Hashem, here we go. But anyway, so if you looked within the context, there's everything surrounding studying and working to show yourself approved and making sure you're a worthy vessel of the light of Torah. It's all centered around what you do with your words. Because one of the things that you're supposed to do when you study Torah is speak it out loud. And, you know, it's just kind of like, so you can't be a person who speaks brachot, which are the words of the Torah, and then cursing others as you're doing that. This is where the writings of James come in. He says, can blessings and curse come from the same uh, the same spring? Can pure water, fresh water and dirty water come from a spring? You know, it's just like, ah. Okay, let's get that right. Okay, so let's go to James. Let's go to Yaakov. Egeret Yaakov. I believe it's chapter 3. Hmm. Yep, here it is. Let's go down to verse 9. With the tongue we bless Adonai, our Father, and with it we curse men. Who have been made in God's likeness. Okay, so I just brought that up and here it is. It's literally verbatim from Yaakov. Everyone is in God's image. So, verse 10. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Verse 11. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree grow olives or a grapevine bear figs? 
Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. There we go. That's what I was trying to say. Thank you, Yaakov, for making my life much easier. Okay. So let's get to our main point here in Lakute Torah for Tazria. So we can have Hashem take us beyond our limited mortal capacity when we take the initiative and say, Hashem, I'm going to love and respect you. I'm going to have fear for you. You know, like I'm doing it. I may not succeed at it, but I'm doing it. Hashem is like, okay, I got you. Don't worry. says when we do this, Hashem reciprocates and bestows upon us the ability to surpass our limited mortal capacity for love and fear of the divine so that we attain a degree of love and fear of God unattainable without assistance from above. So hopefully this is all clear of how people can say, no, nah, I can never do that. I don't understand how you're Jewish. Oh, so sad. You got to eat kosher. I wish you could eat this, you know, that I'm eating. Or I wish you could, uh, you know, do whatever. It's like, nope, I don't wish I could do any of that. I'm grateful for where I'm at. <laughs> you know, thank you, but no, thank you. <laughs> and this is amazing because Hashem, this is what's called grace, by the way. This is... This makes me think of what um, Benny B. Shlita, Letter of Jacob Ben Burton, wrote in uh, his commentary on Parsha Metzora. So let's go to this real quick. Let's see if I can find it. He quoted, um, there's a Christian scholar known as John Gill. And he says this, he says, the mystical or spiritual meaning of this, what verse, the Leviticus 13, 13, compared with Luke or cross-reference with Luke 5, 12, there were the, the men who had, uh, there was a man who was full of Zarat. He saw Yeshua fell on his face and begged the master, if you want, you can make me clean. And it says, this particular Metzora was covered with Zarat and was close to the stage of being declared clean. The priest shall examine him and behold, if the leprosy has covered all his flesh, he shall pronounce him clean of the plague. It has all turned white. He is clean, which is Leviticus thirteen thirteen. So here's what John Gill says. The mystical or spiritual meaning of this is that when a man sees himself to be a sinful creature, all over covered with sin and no part free, and disclaims all righteousness of his own. Key phrase. I have no righteousness. Filthy wretch I am. You know, like the beating our chest prayer of the Shemoni Esrei that we pray. Here's what it goes on to say. To justify him before God, so we don't have any righteousness of our own, to justify us before Shem. It says, but holy trust to and depends upon the grace of God for salvation 
and the righteousness of the Mashiach for his acceptance with God, he becomes clean through the grace of God and the blood and righteousness of Mashiach. John Gill on Leviticus 13, 13. I thought that was interesting because Christians have this apparent idea that grace is something completely different from what's in the Torah. When we just read in Lakute Sukkot that Hashem gives us divine assistance, which is, by the way, called Yeshua or a.k.a. salvation. Literally, it means divine assistance. So when we talk about getting saved, it's like saved from what and when? Because don't we or do we not always need saving? (laughs) So anyway, Hashem gives us grace. It says, after all, God is infinite and beyond all ability of humans to grasp. Okay, Lakute Torah, seriously? (laughs) So we go, okay, God, I'm going to grab a hold of you. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, since you're willing to do something that's really not attainable for you to do, here you go. I'll let you grab a hold of me. And then it says, so any love or fear we feel for him on our own is not truly directed at God himself. But at whatever limited conception we ourselves have of him. That is huge. So we have a limited love and fear of Hashem that we can have. And it's based off of our own conception. So then it goes on to say, yet when we have tried our utmost to appreciate whatever we are able to appreciate of God, God rewards us with the divine assistance necessary to actually love and fear God as he is in himself, i.e. not merely as he manifests within creation. Here's a Yeshua drop. Hashem as he is within himself versus how he manifests in creation. Mashiach Yeshua is Hashem as he manifests in creation. Among the Torah, the clouds of glory, the rock that traveled with us in the wilderness, the ark, which includes the tablets, you know, like just things like that. So, goes on to say, a true love and fear of God impossible without his help. So, for us to truly love and fear Hashem, we have to take the initiative and Hashem is like, great, I'll hook you up. So, here's where it brings us to about this woman having a child supernaturally. In mystical terms, our efforts to arouse love and fear of God within ourselves are called Iaruta or Itaruta de la Sata, which is arousal from below, and Haalat, which is the raising up of feminine waters. So we are the part of the verse in Leviticus where it says, When the woman shall conceive, and as is brought down in Barakot and Nida, when the woman emits seed first, then a male child is born. So our arousal from below, us taking our initiative, we are raising up lower waters or feminine waters 
which is like us giving forth the seed because us being the woman. So this is how you cause a son to be born. We take the initiative first. And then Hashem responds. And it says, so in which phrase the abbreviation pronounced man stands for mayin nukvin. And yes, this is related to the concept of nukva, which is the female counterpart to zer anpin, the miniature presence. So going on, it says, God's response is known as itaruta de leela, like leela leela, beyond and beyond. It says from arousal from above. So, and it says in this or an ham shachat, drawing down of masculine waters, where the abbreviation mod stands for mayin, mayin de hurin. Okay, so we have the process of conception here. Either we're going to go first or Hashem goes first. If Hashem goes first, it's a girl. If we go first, it's a boy. And then it says, as stated, the preferred order is that we first engage in the raising up of the lower waters in order to elicit God's drawing down of masculine waters, as hinted in the verse, Genesis 3.16, and your yearning shall be for your husband. So again, Genesis 3.16 applies to all of us, all of Israel, that we are to yearn for Hashem. We're to raise up our waters first. And then it says, this sequence to our relationship with God causes the woman, i.e. the Jewish people, or in the individual case, any particular worshiper to give birth to a male. And it goes on and on and on. So I'm going to end it there, put a pin in it. But this is the whole thing about understanding these women who gave birth to a male child supernaturally by Hashem this is further proof of their yearning for their husband truly yearning for Hashem so you understand about how Miriam found so much favor in Hashem's eyes what that woman's heart must have been like for him to go oh my gosh I want my Mashiach to be born through her same thing with King Ahaz like the potential he had for the supernatural child to be born and that to be the Mashiach like whoa how much it was for Sarah how much did she have to yearn for Hashem and then she was granted to be born Yitzhak crazy which just I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to say it just because it's rolling around in my head. How much did creation yearn for Hashem that Hashem was like, you know what? I'm going to cause Adam to come forth. Okay, there I said it. Okay, got that out. All right. Here we go. Mashiach, who, what, why, how, where? When? 
We're going to start with something ridiculous. I mean, this whole book is ridiculous. I don't even know why I said that. We're going to start on page 19. So I was questioned last week by a coworker of mine who said, yeah, you know this story about this one guy who uh, he, like, spilled seed on the ground and God killed him. And then another guy who got married to the same woman, he also did the same thing. And then God killed him. I was like, oh, yeah, Aaron Onan. He was like, uh, sure, I guess. And I'm like, dude, you asked me, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he showed me a meme. It was a meme about God killing people. And I'm like, oi, oi, oi. So I told him real quick. I said, so here's the, here's the short, because I don't really have a lot of time to tell you. But those people were basically trying to prevent the Mashiach from being born. It's a long story. And ultimately... Uh, the father of those individuals had to uh, engage in marital or engage in relations with this woman and cause her to conceive. And then again, another picture of the woman yearning to conceive, right? To give birth to a male child. Cause how much did uh, Tamar yearn for bringing the Mashiach? She did whatever it took to ensure that he would be born even if it meant dress up and make yourself look like a harlot and sleep with someone from the house of David. Oh, yes, that just happened. Because David is the descendant of Yehuda, and Tamar was totally not a harlot, but she was seen as one, and she ended up sleeping with Yehuda. And ultimately, that's how King David was born. That's how Mashiach was born. So it's not a stretch to think that the mother of the Mashiach would be a harlot. Also, with the mother of David, there's a whole story, the story of Nitzavit, that she was considered to be so kosher that uh, King David's dad was like, oh my gosh, I'm a Moabite. I can't do this. I can't be with you. So he divorces her and he takes some random lady. I think it was the handmaid. I can't uh, sleep out for not knowing the source by heart yet, but he basically, it was like the handmaid or whatever of Nedzevit and her and Nedzevit ended up having a conversation about this. And the night that uh, David's dad, which is Yishai was supposed to Jesse he was supposed to sleep with his his new wife that he got married to. They ended up switching places, just like uh, Rachel and Leah did. And Yishai ended up sleeping with Nezevit, thinking it was his wife that he was supposed to be married to because he thought, I couldn't be married to Nezevit because I'm a Moabite and I'm not a Jew, can't enter into the assembly, all that kind of stuff. So then what ends up happening is King David is born of Nedzevit and she's seen as like, oh, you harlot, you went out, you got pregnant. I can't believe this. You know, you had this offspring. So David says, I was conceived in iniquity, like in the Psalms and the telling, right? So now he thinks, oh my gosh, I was born of a harlot, King David, right? And who is the Mashiach known as? The son of David. So like the father, like the son, right? Yeah. 
So there you go. And it's just like, well, your mother really wasn't a harlot. She's super kosher and you're totally the king. And that's how it goes. So anyway, what's up with all this craziness? So I ended up telling him, I was like, listen, my coworker, I'm going to send you all of this. Don't worry. Don't panic. I know it sounds weird. He's like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. I was like, it is. It's also in the oral Torah. <laughs> He's just like, what? So, yeah. So I sent him like a whole lot of stuff. And he was just like, man, like he couldn't, he, he he was just going crazy. So it was just like, I'm glad I did not send him anything else because he would have overloaded and exploded. But this is what Torah does. Sometimes people just need such a boost like that. And it's just like, I'm glad that's kind of where we left it. We didn't really try to go more and I didn't try to push more things on him, you know, because again, we don't want to shatter vessels, right? Although I think he has a very, very big vessel because to me anyway, he is the the uh Avenger of Professor X, Professor Xavier. Like and it's funny because his 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 real name is actually Xavier, but he goes by Paul. So I call him Shaul. But anyway, I see him as Professor Aleph. So uh yeah. But he doesn't know that. It's neither here nor there, but just because Avengers are totally a thing, uh, and Professor Olive has quite the bit of Omega level ridiculous ability as superpower. So, yeah. So I, I thought I thought he could handle it, and I, I'm trusting Hashem that I made the uh, right call and right decision on that because. It was totally something he, he really wanted to know and really needed, and I pray it was beneficial. But this page in the Mashiach book, page 19, this is one of the places I showed him. Because this is all about the birth process, the lineage. This can really connect back to what we talked about last week with the whole um, eggshell cup game, like where's the where's the prize and where's the real story, you know, because it's like all these Miriams, all these Yeshua's, all these Hezekiah's, you know, and it's like, who, who's the real Mashiach? Will you please stand up? What's the deal with the lineage? What's the deal with Nathan? What's the deal with Shlomo? You know, all this kind of stuff. So here it is, page 19. It says, and explaining why this is so, the Ari, the Arizal teaches that there are certain souls which stem from very high levels, such as those of Abraham, King David, and Mashiach. And it says, when these souls are ready to descend to this world, there is great opposition from the Klepot, which is forces of evil. They argue that since these souls are so great, not only will they not succumb to evil, but they will bring others to recognize and serve God. Okay. I'm going to swerve over into some Talmud Chagiga 15 real quick. See if I can keep this all in order because this is... Uh, I have a lot of things tabbed in here and I want to make sure that I can get back to everything. Okay. Let's see if I go to tags. Okay. Hagiga 15 a 
says a righteous person introduces virtue into the world and thereby alters the nature of the world and the people in it. His noble deeds induce others to be virtuous as well. A person is credited for the deeds or a person is credited for the good deeds he did as well as those good deeds he helped to bring about. Conversely, a wicked person brings evil into the world and indirectly induces others to sin. He is held account. He is held to account for both his sins and the sins of those affected by him. Now, the wicked person is rewarded in this world for his few good deeds. Thus, his portion in the gun Eden is given to the righteous who are responsible for introducing virtue into the world. Conversely, the righteous are punished for their few wicked acts in this world. Thus, their portion in Gehenna is passed on to the wicked. See Base Halevi on Noach. So in other words, the Klepot understand the fact that the, the righteous person born into this world will change the world and the people in it. And they understand that if it's an evil person, they'll change the world and the people in it. So they're like, okay, so if you're going to bring down Abraham and David and Mashiach, then we got a problem with that because of the ramifications. So it goes on to say God's own attribute of judgment is forced to concede for such souls can overcome the forces of evil negate free will and bring about an open revelation of godliness you ever wonder why god doesn't just crack open the sky and just peek out to the whole creation and go all right everyone here i am here's here's the here's the god you're supposed to believe in hello atheists hello you know agnostic people you know those kinds of things like no god's not gonna do that we have free will it's up to us. What what do we want to do? Just like with Mashiach. Do you want me or do you not? Obviously, y'all know what team I'm on. So then it says, how can these great souls descend? So with all that being the case, how do we bring these souls down without negating free will? says God uses a ruse to trick the forces of evil. He consents to the transmigration of these souls through unsophisticated, even wicked people. Upon seeing that these great souls are very near the realm of evil, the Klepot agree to the soul's descent, thinking they will prevail over it and cause it to sin. Sha'ar HaGilgalim number 38. So here it is. So it's like, okay, so you want to bring David in? Well, let's make David be such a ridiculously horrible person. Let's give him little to no credit or credence in this world that he could affect people. Because King David will have to overcome his own issue of being born of a harlot quote unquote 
Abraham is going to have to deal with, okay, you're going to be the first Jew. You're going to come and serve Hashem. Well, what about the fact that your father is the king's idol maker, number one in the king's army of the most ridiculous ruler that ever hit the earth, whose name was Nimrod, just super savage and like thought he was Hashem threw people in the furnace when they told him otherwise. Yeah, think about the dynamics of that. He's like, yeah, you know, everybody's going to bow to me and serve me. And his number one general has Abraham, <laughs> who Abraham is known for killing gods. <laughs> and is just like, seriously, this is going to happen? Like, Abraham's going to grow up in the house of the chief general of Nimrod's army and the chief idol maker in the province of Babel. <laughs> like seriously. But yeah, he's going to be the one who brings about the birth of the Jewish people and is going to be the one who returns the world to monotheism. Cause that's a thing. The world wasn't monotheistic since Enosh the son of Shait, Seth. And uh, Abraham is the beginning of bringing that all back. Mashiach is the culmination of that. So, I mean, you got to think about the dynamics of that. And obviously we know about Mashiach because, again, we've been talking about people think he was born of a harlot there's no way Miriam could have had a child, you know, much less supernatural child. Uh, who who are Miriam and Yosef again? Oh, yeah, super not rich people. <laughs> and if they were rich, they would not have had the issues they would have had trying to find a place where you're sure to be born. And, um, yeah. People looked down upon Yeshua and they were like, isn't this Yosef's son? Like, who does this guy think he is? You know, people today think they actually know where his body is or they know where his tomb was because there's a, there's all these holy sites set up in Israel right now of places where Yeshua was born or where he was sacrificed or where he was buried, you know, and it's like all these different things. And then comes Sha'ar HaGilgalim, with this crazy drop from the section on 597, page 597, that says an impure place. It says, again, this is Sha'ar HaGilgalim. To the north of Safat, it should be rebuilt and reestablished speedily in our days. As one walks from Zafat to the north side to the village of Ain Zaytun, by way of a carob tree, is where Yeshu the Christian is buried. Yeah. So north of Zafat apparently is where JC is buried. Yeah, this is in Sha'ar HaGilgalim. I'm literally reading page 597. It says, There 
are two paths there, one to the right towards Ain Zaytun that was mentioned, and the second to the left, which goes towards Hakarel that was mentioned before. So, as one walks from Zafat to the north side to the village of Ain Zaytun by way of a carob tree is where JC is buried. So apparently they have the body of JC and it's been known at least since the time of Ari Zal. Check the timeline on that. So we know as followers of Mashiach that he was resurrected and he was not only resurrected, but where he was buried was not in Safat, but he was buried in Yerushalayim literally near the temple mount obviously the catholics got that right because where did they put their church you know there's a holy site near where he's buried or where he was put let's say it that way so anyway so here's more discrepancies so don't ever be shocked and surprised if, if people say oh can't be believing in Yeshua we know where his body is well who's the last redeemer or Slika who's the first redeemer of Israel okay Moshe right Moses could they find his body they know where it was but they couldn't find it so we know where Yeshua's body is and we can find it. That's why he says, you know the, the way to where I'm going. He tells his Talmudim, I'm going to a place. You know how to get there. However, currently, we don't see his body. And currently, we haven't made it to where his body is. So, just like with everything else, here's more things for us to understand and deal with and understand. Okay, Yeshua is not a sorcerer. He's not buried in Safat area. He is not born of a harlot from Bethlehem, known as Miriam Magdala. By the way, that's the Miriam that people attribute to that uh, particular account. The Miriam who had relations with a Pantera character. Uh, it was Miriam Magdala. So, obviously we know from the gospel accounts, Miriam had an interesting past, to say the least. And Yeshua delivered her from that. He wasn't born from her. So, yeah. And then we know about the Yeshua who Unkelos uh, talks about in the Talmud, who is, he says he's rotting in filth along with the transgressors of Israel. There's another... Uh, Yeshua character who's considered to be um, let's see of Nazareth and he has a disciple that was supposedly going to heal someone of a snake bite but people were like no we don't know if we should do this because he's a heretic da 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 okay then we have the 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 things that we brought up last week about the Menachem who was born uh, on Tishbaav. 
So, I mean, yeah, the the whole Mother Hebzibah thing. So, I mean, it's just kind of like, all right, so we're all over the map again. This time, talking about where he's actually buried. So, anyway, just so we all know, that's totally a thing. All right, so that's the birth of the supernatural child. Let's go over to the leper. So I want to start out with my notes here. Pull this up. If you look at the word Hebra or Hebra in the Targum, it is Chet Yod Vav Resh. And it also has an Aleph on it if you want to look at the Aramaic, which you first find in the passage of Vayikra 14. Or Sleekah 13, verse 4. It says, if the shiny spot on the skin is white. So, Ve'im Baharet Levana. But if the bright spot is white. Okay? So, Baharet comes from the word Bahir. So, there is totally a Jewish source called the Bahir. That literally means bright, shiny spot. First use of Bahir, or Baharit anyway, is in 13.2. First use of Bahir is in Job 37. says, which is bright in the skies. So it all has to do with brightness. So the brightness has a descriptive term known as Lavana. So a white brightness. The word Lavana is used for the word Kivra. Okay. Unkalos, Unkalos, Slika. So you pronounce it Unkalos, like, like U-N-K, even though it's spelled O-N-K. But anyway, Unkalos brings down that Lavana is actually Kivra. Now, obviously, Lavana comes from the word Lavan, which is Laban, who is considered to be the white one, the sorcerer. Here's the whole aspect of Yeshua being likened to a sorcerer, right? But then you have this understanding of the temple being called Lebanon because the temple whitens us, makes us pure, like the Isaiah verse I plan on ending on, Bezrat Hashem. Talk about though your sins are scarlet, scarlet, you shall be made as white as snow. And remember, if you're white all over, you're considered to be pure. Even though the white bright spots are considered to be Zarat. But in the eyes of the Cohen, and just like we read even in John Gill's commentary, when we're at a place of understanding our righteousness is not of our own, that we have no merits, that we're utterly sinful, then that's when Hashem's supernatural, divine amazingness comes from above and goes, okay, cool, you're clean. You get it. You understand. You need me. 
So yeah, anyway. So back over here to Hebra. The Targum brings down that this is the word for white. And it is white skin or white spot. Um, leprous, leper, white spotted. Okay. Now, obviously, this connects to Isaiah 53. But we're going to hold it down there for just a moment. We're going to go over here to Benny B's. Uh, commentary for Parsha Medzora, and it says, Ki Adam, when a man, so now we're going to be back to Adam for a second. When a man, which is Adam, have shall have a rising in his body's skin or scab, a bright spot, and it becomes the skin of his body, the plague of Za'arat, leprosy, when then he shall be brought to Aaron the Cohen, Aaron the priest, or to the one of his sons, the priests. Vayikra Leviticus thirteen two. Okay. So here's the first use of our word Bahir. And it says, While Adam can mean man and has a connection to the word red. So you have this idea of red and white. Okay. It says it harkens back to Adam Harishon. Because when you say red in Hebrew, it's Edom, which is the same as Adam. You spell it the same way. Just change the vowel points. And then it says it harkens back to Adam Harishon, the first man who sinned in the Garden of Eden. Adam's sin caused a shockwave effect of spiritual za'arat, leprosy, throughout creation. So, though your sins are scarlet, you shall be made as white as snow. Right? That's where we're going. That's where we're getting to. So, you have this idea of the red caused this whiteness to go out. Make everything leprous. Remember, Miriam was covered in white, and so was Moshe at the burning bush when he stuck his hand in his cloak. So when Adam sinned, he also caused all this whiteness to just break out over all of creation. And then it says, causing untold suffering in the world. So all this suffering, all this pain that we're having, why does bad things happen to good people? That whole thing. Here it is. It says when Adam was confronted about his sin by God, he immediately points at the woman and says, the woman you gave to me or you gave to be with me, gave it to me. Instead of owning up to his disobedience, he shifts the blame. By the way, one of the causes of Zaharat is blame shifting. That's also a part of Lashon Hara. See, we have to be at a place of owning up to our stuff. Okay? If we mess up, we messed up. Don't try to blame other people. Don't try to be like, well, if, if everybody would have just done this, then I would have done that. You know, it's like, while that's true, 
you still have the power to change this. We just read about the virtue that a righteous person can have on nature and people. So why don't you step it up, right? This is why if we take a lesson from the Chafetz Chaim, the way to change the world is to change yourself. So yeah, everyone around you could be doing completely the wrong thing, completely the opposite thing. But what are you supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be doing? Let's do that. The world may not want to be into avenging. The world may not want to be into bringing the Geula or circling around our studies of Torah. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't. And that doesn't mean that we can't. Matter of fact, it's all the more so that we should and that we can. Doesn't take many of us. Just a few people being at Shalom with each other can bring redemption. So let's make it happen. So the blame shift was not only to Eve, but it was also to Hashem. It's like, Hashem, this is your fault. It's Eve's fault. It's your fault. It's the serpent's fault. It's totally not my fault. However, in order for fruit to get into Adam's mouth, his hand caused it. Yikes. You know, it's one thing to say it's their fault for doing it, but if there's footage of you actually making the action for this to occur, no one put the fruit in his mouth. He he put it in his mouth. Yikes. And it says, and he speaks Lashon Hara, which is the evil tongue, malicious slander or gossip. Which, by the way, Shaul tells us people of this nature, they don't and in, in, they don't enter and they don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, this is part of what we're supposed to be putting away during Sephirat Ta'omer. This is really the time for that. And actually, the sages tell us that this is tikkun for the disciples of Rabbi Akiva, who had lots of Lashon Hara, baseless hatred and things like that with each other and caused lots of plagues, which is the whole reason why we mourn for the first 33 days of the Omer. We don't do weddings or haircuts, among many other things. This is considered to be a time of lots of tikkun needed. And we should do everything we can to improve ourselves, to increase harmony and joy between fellow Jews, you know, and I'm thankful for this opportunity because when I was out shopping for Pesach, you know, I got told, uh, Haksameach, like by a lot of Jews I did not know, I've never seen before, probably won't ever see again to the Alam Haba. So I just thought it was a really, really cool thing that this is happening, you know, now. And we should continue to push forth and press forth in these efforts. And it goes on to say the cause of Za'arat is ascribed to Lashan Hara. And the one who experiences Za'arat is called a Medzora, a leper. In Aramaic, the word for leper is Hebra which literally means white. The Torah describes Miriam, the sister of Moshe, speaking Lashon Hara and is punished with the affliction. Miriam and Aaron spoke 
against Moshe because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Which is funny because they talk about her having like this dark skin, this dark complexion. And the result of their accusation is that they get this white complexion. So like just a crazy color contrast here. But anyway, it says the anger of Hashem was kindled against them and he departed. The cloud departed from over the tent and behold, Miriam was full of Za'arat as white as snow. She was as leprous, white as snow, just like the hand of Moshe at the burning bush. It says, Aaron looked at Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. There's a beautiful medrash on this. This is Bamibar 21, verse 1, and then verses 9 through 10. It talks about how was Miriam considered to have Zaharat? Because only the Kohen Gadol could deem a person a Medzora. But Aaron was a Kohen. He's Kohen Gadol. How come he didn't tell Miriam she was a Medzora? Well, that's where the Midrash says, this is how we know Hashem is a Kohen. Because the only way Miriam could get Zaharat is because a non-family member who is a Kohen has to pronounce it. And this was Hashem. So, Hashem is a Kohen. And this is why understanding in the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, because Hashem literally is the righteous king, and the Mashiach will be in the order of the righteous king, namely a king and a priest, because Hashem is the first king of Israel. And now from this account, we're learning Hashem is also a priest, namely the, the high priest, and so Mashiach, who comes from Hashem, will be in that order of Melchizedek, king and also priest. Then it goes on to say, Moshe then prayed for Miriam to be healed. The healing of Zaharat is associated with the redemption and with Moshe Rabbeinu. Benny B, what is going on? <laughs> so Moshe brought the redemption to his sister. Which, by the way, I believe this is connected to the Medrash that once she was healed of this, she was actually able to marry Caleb and give birth to more children. So, yeah. So she she had like this Sarah moment from this so the healing happened so much so that it brought her to a state of youth and she got remarried and she was able to have children like it was, it was crazy. So anyway, just a little backstory on that. The power of Moshe's prayer over his sister caused her to literally be born again and made new like Sarah was so she could have a baby. That's crazy. So Shemot 4, 6 through 8 says, Hashem said, furthermore to him, now put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as white as snow. He said, put your hand inside your cloak again. And he put his hand inside his cloak again. 
And when he took it out of his cloak, behold, it had turned again as his other flesh. It will happen if they will neither believe nor listen to the voice of the first sign. They will believe the voice of the latter sign. Shemot 4, 6-8. This is the beauty of Yeshua HaMashiach healing the lepers. Remember, these people were in quarantine. So they were like, they have to say, Tame, Tame, you know, covering their mouth, unclean, unclean, you know, and if they touched you, you also became defiled and all that kind of stuff. So none of that affected Mashiach Yeshua. And he was the one who initiated the touch. So that's crazy. So. What is the healing process for the leper, the Medzora? Two birds. One dies, one flies away over an earthen vessel of spring water. There's blood, there's hyssop, all these different things. Well, here's what Torah Wellsprings Shemini brings down. Teaches that just as a person is punished for speaking, when he speaks Lashon Hara, one is punished for the times when he had the opportunity to say good words to his friend and he refrained. So it's also about what you're not saying that causes judgments. So then it says a Metzora takes two birds for his purification. See Vayikra Leviticus 14, 4. The chirping birds represent speech. One bird is to atone for the Lashon Hara that he spoke. The other bird is to atone for him for the times when he remained silent and didn't speak up. Zohar Tazria 46. So I want to go back over here to Benny B. Because he t brings down this beautiful thing about this earthen vessel. Yeah, check this out. He says, The priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. As the living bird, he shall take it and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and shall dip them and the living bird and the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. He shall sprinkle on him who is this to be cleansed from leprosy seven times. And then shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into an open field. Okay, so. Uh, let's see, where was that thing? Yeah, now a vessel full of vinegar was set there. They put a sponge full of the vinegar on the hyssop. They put it in his mouth. When they came to Yeshua and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Yochanan, John nineteen twenty nine verses 33 through 34. Yes, we are making a connection to the sacrifice of the leper. 
because Mashiach is a leprous Mashiach. So he cured leprosy not only in his life, but even in his death. The sacrificial ritual elements were even considered to be a part of the crucifixion. We know that the name of the Mashiach is called Dove and and also called a bird. So those are things to take into account. The crazy thing that popped into my head was killing two birds with one stone. The stone being our stony heart, our rebellion against Hashem, our obstinance to the voice of Hashem. It's called the stony heart. And then we have the fact that the two birds, the two Mashiachs were killed, you know, for the sake of our stony heart. But you may say one went to go free into the open field. But how did it get to go free? It had to go through a death process. It literally was covered in the death, you know, effects of what happened to the other bird. Because we know Mashiach ben David and the Mashiach ben Yosef are connected. But Mashiach ben Yosef has to die. Mashiach ben David comes forth, rules and reigns. So there's a there's this crazy back and forth thing to really kind of look at and go hand in hand with that let's see here thought there was something else that I wanted to mention I guess not Yeah, it says, on a deeper level, the clean Zippor is identified with either a Tur, which is a turtle dove, or a Yona. Both Tur and Yona are names for the Mashiach. In fact, pointed out by Sus Kasal, with 13 petals, by the way. Crazy website, but take what you want from there. It says, the word Zippor has the gematria of Zehu Mashiach. This one is Mashiach, which is 370 in Gematria. Then it says, The two birds in the sacrifice of the leper creates a microcosmic echo of Yom Kippur. On this holiest day of the year, two identical goats are brought together. One is killed, the other released. The exact same scenario played out with Yeshua and a man named Yeshua Bar Abba popularly known as Barabbas. As the bird is sacrificed, its blood joins the water flowing from the jar of clay. The human body is likened to a jar of clay. And Hashem is the potter. In a seemingly disconnected passage, the Medrash Rabbah makes a curious observation when Moshe struck the rock. He smote the rock and brought forth blood. As it is said, behold, he smote the rock. The waters gushed out, which is Vayazubu Vayazubu, from Tehillim 78.12 or 20. It's from Psalm 78.20. And the word Vayazubu is an expression uh, used of blood, as it is said. And if a woman have an issue... Yazuv of her blood, Vayikra 15, 
Leviticus 15, 25. For this reason did he smite the rock twice, because at first he brought forth water, or at first he brought forth blood and finally water. Shemot Rabbah 3.13. Remember this one time when the woman who had an issue of blood touched the hem of Yeshua's garment, that thread, because remember the red and the white are connected, right? So the the zitzit are white, and that's what she grabbed a hold of, and it caused her red to be purified. So the red and the white got connected there. And then there was a little girl who was 12 years old who had fallen asleep and Yeshua went to go heal her directly corresponding to the woman who had this issue of blood for 12 years. So you have the 12 and 12. You have these two pictures of the red and the white, you know, the Yom Kippur. They're coming from death into life. Remember, Yom Kippur is so amazing because we have the fact that this is the renewal of the covenant. This is literally where we were brought back from death into life. Through Yom Kippur, we were given the commandment to go ahead and begin collect Teruma so that you can build the Mishkan. That came through Yom Kippur. So literally, the gift of raising up the Mishkan the dwelling of Hashem with us was through Yom Kippur. Now, one of the things I want to just track down really quick over here. Is I believe there is a sprinkling. Of the Yom Kippur blood. Yep. Uh, Vayikra 16 from Akari Mot. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger over the cover on the east side and in the front of the cover. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times, one above and seven below. He shall sprinkle it upon the caport and before the caport. Serena, so tell me the offering of the leper is Yom Kippur. Okay, because this whole sprinkling seven times thing. Okay. Let's read the Messiah text now. I do have to find this particular point, so if you'll give me a second here. Okay, so this just got interesting. Page 367 of the Messiah text, known as the Index, Tells you different topics. Tell me why they have a Jesus of Nazareth section in the preface and then on page 330 and 331. So we are going to swerve over there. Yes, we are. We are going to do it. 330 and 331. Let's talk about it. Hmm. The Pope's letter. Are you serious? I don't know what's about to happen right now. It's completely caught me off guard. Just the or disclaimer. Following the biblical quotations described in the introductory paragraph of Appendix 3, the same manuscript on Folio 134A through B 
contains a remarkable piece of writing purporting to be the Hebrew translation of an answer, quote unquote, sent by an unidentified pope to a likewise unidentified king of France and containing a justification of the killing of Jesus by the Jews. The Pope's argument exonerating the Jews of the responsibility of killing Jesus is cast in the favorite midrashic form of a parable. So the Pope's argument of exonerating the Jews is put in a parable. The answer sent by the Pope to the king of France, advising him that he should safeguard the Jews who are guiltless in the slaying of that man, i.e. Jesus. So many times people say, the Jews killed Jesus, da 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 And it's like, if a pope during this particular time period of what we're reading about was like, no, the Jews didn't kill that guy. <laughs> okay. Did I mention this person is a pope? Here's what he says. He get the Pope gives a parable. It's a Pope parable. It says, this is like unto a king who entrusted his orchard to his friend that he should watch over it. He commanded him that anyone who wanted to enter the orchard should be killed. Many days later, this, the king wished to test his friend by entering the orchard himself. He disguised himself, put on other clothes. Hello. Mashiach did this. It's crazy. Just Mashiach, the transfigurer, shapeshifter. We talked about that, right? So disguised. Just like Yeshua was with the people on the road to Emmaus. Just like he was after his resurrection when Miriam came looking for his body and she thought he was the gardener. Okay, so he disguised himself, put on other clothes, made himself unrecognizable. This is also what Yosef did to his brothers. He made himself unrecognizable to them. And guess who picks up on this? None other than the Mayim Loez, who says this is the Mashiach. He makes himself strange to his brothers. His brothers don't accept him. Hmm. So going on. It says that um, he wished to test his friend. He made himself unrecognizable. He went to the gate of the orchard and tried to enter by force. And he said that he was the king, but his friend, the gatekeeper, said, you will not enter here for the king warned me that nobody must enter it. You are not the king. The king wanted to show his power, but his friend came and killed him. Thus the Holy One, blessed be he, gave a commandment to Israel and said, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Shemot 20 verses 2 through 3. And you shall guard your souls very much, for you have seen no likeness of me at Mount Sinai, lest you lift up your eyes to Shemaim and make a likeness of male or female or a likeness of any creeping thing. And I have said, for man shall not see me and live. Exodus thirty three twenty, When Jesus came into the world, he came in the likeness of a man, made himself a deity, and they killed him. 
Had they known that he was the deity, they would not have raised a hand against him. Our Savior will save us and send us our true Mashiach quickly in our days. In his days, Yehuda and Yisrael will be saved, and the people of Israel will dwell in safety. Amen. Okay. Well, there's that. Page 3 or 105. It says, The leper Mashiach, I'm in the very middle of the page, talking about Zerubbabel and Rome. Okay, let's back up here. This is interesting. Go back a sentence. It says, It is, of course, Yisrael itself that kept captive in prison that is kept captive in prison in exile. So the whole gates of the Rome gate sitting at the gates of Rome being captive in Rome, that's Israel, but that's Mashiach. Okay. Benny B also brings down more sources on Israel, Mashiach, Isaiah 53, that to take into account. But anyway, it is of course, Israel itself that is kept captive in prison in exile among the nations of the world. So we're considered to be captives because we're among the nations of the world. So the gates of Rome is compared with the nations of the world. So being in exile at the gates of Rome is compared to being in exile among the nations of the world. Okay. This is the exile of Edom, is it not? So this whole entire exile, no matter where you are, is considered to be Rome. So literally all of us are sitting at the gates of Rome. Wow. It says, so in exile among the nations of the world and that when the redemption comes, will be transformed from the despised and wounded figure seen by Zerubbabel in Rome into a youth in the perfection of his beauty. See the below excerpt from Sefer Zerubbabel. Similarly, the leper Mashiach and the beggar Mashiach, with whom we have become acquainted with above, or whom we become acquainted above in chapter 3, are but variants on the same suffering Israel, personified in the suffering Mashiach figure. So in other words, the beggar Mashiach, the leper Mashiach, uh, all the other different Mashiachs, their variants of the aspect of Israel suffering. Let's see if we can find just another little snippet before we index. Let's go to page 31. See what we got over here. Okay, that's our beggar, the, Mash the beggar Mashiach. The leper Mashiach is 31. Here we go. On Friday afternoon, a young Talmudic scholar was writing with the Baal Shem Tov, with the Baal Shem Slika, and a cart across the open field, when all of a sudden he espied a village in the distance, and he was filled with joy, for they thought that they would surely spend the Shabbat there and not out in the open. And in that very moment, they entered the village, and behold, the horse went on of its own through the village and did not stop at any house. The youth became saddened by this, for it seemed that they would, after all, not spend Shabbat in the village. 
but when the horse reached the end of the village, it stopped in front of a ruin. The youth thought that they would spend the Shabbat in that ruin and became filled with joy, for it was better than being in the open field. And the Baal Shem entered the ruin, and the youth went after him, and behold, in the ruined house lived an old man, a leper, a Medzora. From head to foot, there was no hell spot in his body. He was so full of wounds and boils, and his wife and children walked about in torn and tattered garments. And when the Baal Shem opened the door, the old man became filled with joy and ran up to the Baal Shem and said to him, Shalom Alechem, peace unto you, my master and teacher. And he who saw not their joy has never seen joy in his whole life. It's funny, they say this about the water drawing ceremony during Sukkot in the temple. It says, and they went in to a separate room and talked there for about half an hour. And then they took permission from each other and parted from each other in the fe in fierce love, like the love of David and Jonathan. And then the Baal Shem took his seat in the cart and the horse trotted along on its own. On the way back home, the youth asked the Baal Shem, what was the meaning of the joy which the encounter with the old Metzora caused to both of you? And the Baal Shem said to him, As for what happened between me and the old man in the village, as it is known, there is a Mashiach in every generation in this world, in reality clothed in a body. And if the generation is worthy, he is ready to reveal himself. And if, God forbid, they are not worthy, he departs. And behold, that old man was ready to be our true Mashiach, and it was his desire to enjoy my company on the Shabbat. But I foresaw that he would depart at the third meal, which is taken at the outgoing of the Shabbat. And I did not want to endure any pain on the Shabbat, and therefore I took my leave from him before the arrival of the Shabbat. And that's from Cardaner Sefer Sipurim Noraim, page 9a through b and page 10b. So there's more shape-shifting going on, everyone. The Mashiach is an old leprous man. He was a poor beggar at once. He was on the road to Emmaus unrecognized. He was in the garden looking like the gardener. He was transfigured. He was Yosef's son. He's Eliyahu. He's Yermiyahu. He's the man. He is prophet. Who do you say I am? He says, you're Ben Elohim. You're the son of God. Where else can we go? Only you have the words of life. Wow. That is the Mashiach. And I just want to point out, if you look at the children of the Mashiach, the wife of the Mashiach, there's this lowly appearance. And remember, Mashiach is wrapping his bandages with those who also have Zarat. And there was a a comment or there was a comment made 
and the Avenger Circle about the fact of us being leper scholars. Since we're with the Mashiach and we're outside the camp and we're all in quarantine at the gates of Rome, i.e. we're all in quarantine because we're in exile. Who who gets to go to the temple today? Nobody. Because why? We're in quarantine. We're in the longest quarantine of our entire lives. Wow. So anyway, um, yeah, we're considered to be leper scholars. You know, we don't belong. We don't fit in. We're just out in the ruins out here just... You know, being with Mashiach, learning, seeing the beautiful and wondrous riches and beauties and glories in the Shem's Torah, gleaning from the deep wellsprings, you know, getting more and more unfiltered light. And why would we want to trade that for the sake of being embraced and accepted into, you know, mainstream, whatever we want to call it, mainstream group? mainstream judaism i don't know those aren't really correct terms anyway not that we need to argue over words because judaism is judaism like you're either in torah or you're not and i thought that was amazing talking to my havruta earlier today that yeah i would say a lot of jews are observant and i was like oh yeah you know the whole 80 percent the 90 percent who aren't observant you know 80 percent aren't observant in america 90 percent aren't observant in israel he's like well i wouldn't say that because you still have conservative and reform like they're still observance on some level i was just like whoa because yeah those statistics are for who who's the orthodox doesn't ever bring up the conservatives and the reforms which are considered to be observant on some level. So as a side note, if you feel preconditioned, like if I'm not Orthodox, then I'm not doing it. I'm not making it. You know, it's like, no. Are you observant anywhere? Do you observe anything? Because it counts. And a Jew has a complete range. I brought this up. A while back, one of the teachings of Horeb, and I want to just keep reiterating it, Horeb by Rabbi Shimshon Hirsch brings down the importance of the community, the importance of being in a minion, the importance of saying the Kaddish is that you unite the full spectrum of Jews to the lofty scholar, to the least of them who never studies and has just difficulties, you know, focusing and taking time to teach and st- or taking time to learn and things like that. You unite those two when you recite the responses of the congregation to the Kaddish. Everybody is on the same level. So much so that anyone, whether they're lofty or not, who whoever decides at scale, I guess, if you say Amen to the Brakot of the Minyan, you're also brought up to that level. You're brought up to a super lofty level. So this is the importance of being with a minion when you pray and saying amen to those prayers. So here's the closing of Mashiach Mondays for Parsha Tazria Medzora. It says, 
Let's see here. The phrase as white as snow echoes the prophet Isaiah as he describes the seemingly leprous spiritual condition of Israel and the remedy for her. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Wounds, welts, open sores, they haven't been closed, neither bandage, neither soothed with oil. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remember all we talked about, you know, the you going first, you taking the initiative and Hashem responds with his divine assistance. And isn't it interesting that Hashem's manifestation of divine assistance washed us, made us clean. Just like the offering of the leper, it has all the elements of the leper in there. The bird, the hyssop, the spring, the fresh water, the earthen vessel. You know, this is why Mashiach was also in a in a body. He needed the, the earthen vessel to put the spring water in. Anyway. So wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil from your doings. From before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek justice, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says Adonai. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Yeshiyahu, which is Isaiah 1, 6 and 16 through 18. The Art Scroll Commentary brings this down. I guess I'll go up here. It says, Though offerings and prayer offer no hope for sinners to be blessed as long as they continue to disobey. Though offerings and prayer offer no hope for sinners to be blessed as long as they continue to disobey the commandments. Though offerings and prayer offer no hope for sinners to be blessed as long as they continue to disobey the commandments, Selah, there is still a way for sinners to save themselves and restore their connection to God. That foolproof way is sincere repentance. Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 2. In the middle of the book, the section on repentance for uh, for after twenty five hundred years of probing, philosophy finally has come to the conclusion that unless revealed by some higher power, no objective standard of good and evil exists. Good and evil are defined as revealed by God. Thus, God also has the power to forgive sin and eradicate any evil that a person may commit the same authority that declares something evil and sinful can also declare it forgiven. The voice binds it. The voice that binds is also the voice that loosens. Yeshua says something to the effect, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosen shall be loosened in heaven. It says if sin is spiritual sickness, 
then God has provided repentance as its cure, just as God may have decreed something impure, so he has decreed the means of its purification. When any person repents, his sins are forgiven. The doors of repentance are open to every human being, Jew and non-Jew alike. Which makes me think about Hagiga 15 with the story of Acher. See if we can go to it. So the whole thing, there was a voice that said everyone can repent except Acher. There was a whole story about individuals who got to go into Pardes, higher levels of heaven. They saw the be the beautiful things of the higher heavenlies and they saw Memtet and things like that. And because of the utterance from the lips of Acher, he caused Memtet to be lashed with la fiery uh, lashes. And then um, he was basically, he went insane and crazy from what he saw. And he thought there were multiple deities in Shemaim and they're not. And um, he went just into a life of sin and all sorts of stuff. And a divine voice said, everybody can repent except Acher. Here's the footnote to that. Hagiga 15a. For he knew my glory and nevertheless rebelled against me. That's from the Ain Yaakov. The consequences of a devout person's actions are much greater than those of a lesser person. Depending on the spiritual level of a person, his deeds reach higher and higher into the supernal worlds. See Nefesh Hachaim 1 4 and 6. When the great Tana, Elisha ben Avuya, aka Akr, sinned through a heretical belief while experiencing a Merkaba vision, the damage was of catastrophic proportions. And then it says, it is clear. Like, uh, okay, got to go back. Stand by. Yeah, I'm reading footnote 29. So it is clear from the Gemara that below that Acker himself thought he was permanently excluded from the possibility of repentance. However, many of the commentators note that the gates of repentance are never shut. Devarim Rabbah 2.12 Thus, they assert that God would certainly have accepted him back had he repented. Nothing stands in front of repentance. See Maharsha. The message of the heavenly voice was simply that God would not encourage Acher to repent as God encourages others. So, yeah, that whole Lakute Torah drop about we taking the initiative and Hashem responding. And likewise, it's like, OK, so Hashem is not going to go beyond over here to help you, Acher, because of the open, outright rebellion that you're in. But it's still possible for you. 
which just means he has a lot more to overcome to take the initiative. And then once that initiative takes place, then Hashem obviously will respond. And likewise, because the cure for sin is repentance. This is why it says no sacrifice remains for intentional sin. There's not a Corbin for that. If you're going to intentionally go out and sin, there is not a Corbin for that. But there is Teshuvah. The crazy part is, if you put yourself in such a predicament where you're just constantly sinning, you constantly sin, you become like that leprous person who's white all over, you know? And it's just kind of like, oh yeah, you're, you're so gone, you're clean. But the flip side of it is you can be so racked with sin that you can be so sinful that you can be made clean. It's like, which way do you want to go with this? Because, again, I brought this up before, Mashiach is so powerful for a lot of people to where drug dealers and ex other ex-cons and ex-immoral people have completely been cleaned up and their lives turned around and they're truly on fire for Hashem. And because they're in churches, uh, they obviously don't know much about Torah much less maybe not even have access to it. So imagine if they did, because there's a lot of that going on. So just again, as an encouragement, the the story of Acre teaches us that no matter how far away you may be, you still can come back. It says evil and sin. This is Handbook of Jewish Thought. I'm on page 206. This is volume two says evil and sin exist only in order to allow man to have free will and therefore are neither part of God's primary purpose, nor do they have permanence. God may have allowed for the existence of evil, but it's like a blot in the fabric of creation. And as such, it is readily eradicated by repentance. Don't it make you want to shout? Come on and shout. Everybody gonna shout. This is an old school song for an old school commercial. They had this commercial for uh, this thing called Shout, where if you got like ketchup stains on your white shirt or, you know, some kind of just ridiculous spot, and you're just like, where'd that spot come from? They had these little pins called Shout Pins. You just put some shout on it, and it literally got out of there. And this is evil. This is sin in our lives that we can hit it with shout. It's interesting that one of the root meanings in the word Yeshua is the word Shavah, which means shout, cry out. Yeah, there's a lot more in here in the handbook, but just wanted to bring that point up. Um, going down, learn to do good. This is back in the art scroll, Isaiah translations follows, uh, lim du hetev follows Radak and Ibn Ezra. It is not enough to stop sinning. One must also perform good deeds. That's from the Malbim because people can perfect themselves only through positive action. 
the this exhortation also urges people not to act on impulse to define what is good requires thought and analysis it is easy to deceive oneself into thinking that what one wants is right and what is difficult or inconvenient is wrong seeking justice their shoe mishpat from the word drosh so drosh mishpat says this is directed not only to judges. Every person must make decisions about other human beings and about matters that can affect them. It says, do not judge lest you be judged, but when you judge, judge with righteous judgment. Because you will have to judge other humans and other matters. And then later in the writings to Corinthians, Shaul tells us, we are going to judge angels in the time to come. That's crazy. But anyway, render justice to the orphan, take up the grievance of the widow, both of whom are generally helpless and easy to victimize from the Mizzuto. Therefore, need your help so that their plight should not worsen. That's from the Ma'am Loez. Then it says 18 through 20 is a plea for repentance lest Yeshayahu's admonition make people feel that there is no hope for them. He tells them now that if they only stop to think and repent, God would forgive all their sins. He challenges them, therefore, to an honest discussion of who wronged whom. And then this is the phrase I really wanted to get to. Come now, which is literally go, let us reason together. I was like, what does let us reason together mean? It says God tells the people to forget their passions, discard their natural defense mechanism. If only they would analyze their behavior objectively, they would acknowledge that they, not God, were at fault. Again, that whole blame shifting thing. So in order for you to get to that point, you have to forget your passion and discard your natural defense mechanism. Imagine what that would have been like if Hashem was like, Adam, you want to tell me what happened? Well, sorry, sir. I hesitated, you know, and just kind of went into this whole thing of I wasn't around. I allowed the serpent to do his talking. I allowed, you know, Hava to be misinformed. I didn't really give her the whole truth and nothing but the truth, you know, like all that. It says this is I mean, by the way, this is why it's so important for us to understand that the tikkun for all of that is our confessing and our believing in Hashem and his Mashiach. Like we have to confess like that's that's our repair is confessing. It says alternatively. Let us all be admonished. Isaiah meant to encourage the people to repent by including himself in the admonishment. We don't just go around telling people to repent. We also say we need to repent as well. All of us must repent. Come, let us all recognize our shortcomings and return to God together. A barbanel. None of us are above reproaching this. All of us can find something in our life that we can repent about. 
Why did Yeshiahu say leku, which is go, rather than bou, which is come? Homiletically, it is common that when someone is chastised, he may well resolve to change his ways and repent, but when he leaves the serious assembly and goes back to his everyday affairs, he forgets about his new resolve and resumes his old ways. Therefore, the prophet stressed that his words should continue to inspire listeners even when they go. Menachem Zion. One more thing. This precedent for being forgiven of all your sins, for exchanging sins and merits, there's a precedent for that. And that's this week's parsha. The Chavavot Halevavot. Sha'ar Hakina or Hakniya 7 reveals that when someone speaks Lashon Hara, an exchange occurs. The speaker's mitzvot go to the person he slandered. The sins of the person that was slandered go to the speaker. The Chovat Halevavot writes, if someone speaks Lashon Hara on you, tell him, don't slander me, my brother. Have mercy on your merits so you don't lose them without you knowing. It has been told about one of the Hasidim who sent a bowl filled with fruits from his country to the person who spoke Lashon Hara to him with a note attached that said, the gifts, your mitzvot that you sent me when you slandered me have arrived. I express my gratitude to you with this bowl. Wow. <laughs> okay. Another Hasid said, Many people will come to their judgment in Shemaim and will be shown their good deeds and will find among their deeds, or Slika, and will find among their merits many mitzvot that they never performed. They will say, We never did these. That makes me think of those who say, Lord, Lord. And he's just like, Depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. And they're like, what are you talking about? We we prophesied in your name. We raised the dead. Da, 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 da. And he's like, yeah, but there's a whole lot of other stuff you did. And all those mitzvot got exchanged for sins. So therefore, you're called workers of iniquity. Anyway, um, it says, and they will be answered. They were performed by the persons who spoke. Lashon Hara on you. Those who spoke Lashon Hara will discover that they are missing mitzvot. They will be told, you lost them when you spoke against this person and when you spoke against that person. Some people will find their sin, some people will find sins in their book of faults that they never did. They will complain, we never did these sins. They will be answered. These were given to you because of such and such person and such and such person whom you spoke against as it restates or as it states return to your neighbors bosom sevenfold the amount of disgrace that they disgraced you Talim 79:12 taking these matters into consideration no one will ever desire to speak lashon hara the loss is just too great nevertheless all his good deeds will return to him when he does teshuva. Reb Zvi Kaziv, uh, Kaziglover Ziyah 
or ZYA, which I just went over this last week and I already forgot it. Oy va voy. Yep, because you remember we went over this last week. Don't know why I forgot it. Uh, Zikron, what was it? I think I saved it under acronyms. See if I can do this real quick. Z I think it was Zikron or Zekut. May their merit something like that. Something with merits. Boy, how did I forget it? This is right here, a picture of why you have to review your studies. <laughs> Zekuto Yagen Alenu, which is may his merit shield us. Okay. Revs V. Kazi Glover. May his merit shield us, which is ZYA. The Torah and the good deeds of the Medzora will return to him when he repents and accepts on himself to refrain from speaking Lashon Hara. Just like we just read, it's not about what you do when you go, but it's about what you do when you come because... Once you leave from a place, you may be, let me say this the correct way here, from our Menachem Zion. The prophet stresses words should continue to inspire listeners even when they go. Okay, so you, you come to a place and it's like, boom, okay, fixed it, repentant, okay, boom. But when you leave that place, i.e. when you go, it's like still... Come with the same intensity and enthusiasm that you came. That's the same thing you have to do when you go. This is the beauty of the 10 people with Za'arat and the gospel accounts that they went away rejoicing. One of them came back. Yeshua was like, where are the others? It's like, well, I don't know, but I'm here. A picture of the going and the returning needs to be the same. The same joy those others left with is the same joy and passion that the one came back to Yeshua with. May it be so for us that we go forth and we return with much joy and enthusiasm and serving Hashem, taking the initiative, entering into prayer, leaving prayer, going out into the world, going into this month of ER, leaving out of ER, going into Savan, getting ready for the giving of the Torah, coming to Mashiach, going out from Mashiach, only to return back again, just in our knowledge and our understanding of him, 
getting all these different, um, insights and commentaries and, um, just different accounts that are continuously coming up about Yeshu's or Jesus or, you know, any kind of Mashiach figures that come into play, you know, all these kinds of things, regardless, do we love Hashem? Do we want Mashiach? And I would say we want Mashiach now. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu menech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah emet, vechaye olam nata betokhenu. Baruch atah Adonai, noten haTorah.